Dr. Sarah Ogilvie has spent eight years studying the creation of the Oxford English Dictionary. Her book is called The Dictionary People. Ogilvie has a PhD in linguistics from Oxford, studied over 3,000 original contributors to the dictionary. Her comment in the introduction about what she found is, quote, I was thrilled to discover not one, but three murderers, a pornographic collector, Karl Marx's daughter, a president of Yale, the inventor of the tennis net adjuster, a pair of lesbian writers who wrote under a male pen name, and a cocaine addict found dead in a railway station laboratory. I'm Juan, and I'm part of the team that produces C-SPAN podcasts. As a listener, you can help us continue to produce our quality podcasts about history, books, and current events with a tax-deductible contribution to C-SPAN's nonprofit operations. Visit cspan.org slash donate to learn more. Thanks for listening. Sarah Ogilvie, when you started many years ago, the Dictionary People, how did you get into it? What was your What was your motive? I got into it because I used to be an editor on the Oxford English Dictionary. And I was down in the basement of Oxford University Press, where the dictionary archive is stored. And I opened this dusty box and I came across this little black book tied with cream ribbon. And when I opened it, I immediately recognized the immaculate handwriting of James Murray. And James Murray was the most famous long-serving editor of the Oxford English Dictionary. This turned out to be his address book with the names and addresses of all the people that he corresponded with. And why this was significant is because the the Oxford English Dictionary back in the 19th century, when it when it started in 1858, it was actually a crowdsourced project. So when they decided to create this dictionary of every word in the English language, they knew that a small group of men living in Oxford or in London couldn't do that alone. So they had the smart idea of asking people all around the world, in America, Australia, South Africa, everywhere, to read their local books, write out their local words on little slips of four by six paper and send them into Oxford. So the OED really was the Wikipedia of the 19th century. And they didn't know whether this would be successful or not, but so many people responded and sent in these slips to James Murray there at 78 Banbury Road, Oxford, which is where he lived and he worked on the dictionary in his back garden, in a shed in the back garden, which he nicknamed the Scriptorium. And it was there that all of these people's slips found their way to his desk. And it was thanks to their contributions that he could then create the dictionary because from their slips of paper, he was able to see how every word was used. And the OED was a very radical dictionary for the 19th century because no one had written such a descriptive dictionary before. And it's so it's thanks to these contributions from all those people. And nine years ago, when I was down in that basement, as soon as I looked at James Murray's address book, I was very excited because we, until now, and until these address books, I actually found 
three address books belonging to him. And then the following year in the Bodleian Library, I found three belonging to his predecessor, Frederick Furnival. So with these six address books, I've been able to trace these people and finally shine a light on them. So we know that there were 3,000 people, many of them Americans, far more Americans than we ever realized, which is quite exciting because I guess people have traditionally thought of the OED as a quintessentially British dictionary. But this shows that actually there were hundreds of Americans contributing and sending in American words. Can you get an Oxford English Dictionary hardback version today? Yes, yes, you can. Uh, It is the second edition, which actually came out back in 1989. And from and but you can still buy them. There are 20 volume work. And they're now working on the third edition. And so I used to work as an editor on the third edition. And as they're revising that that second edition, it's doubling in size. So I think when it's finally finished, we're probably looking at 40 volumes if if they decide to actually publish it in book form then. They might just keep it on digital form. And you can, of course, access the dictionary at oed.com so you can access it digitally as well if you bought that 1989 hardback version 20 volumes what would it cost you do you know i'm not sure we would have to check it out on (laughs) on the net maybe yeah i don't know so how far is oxford university from london it's an hour by train and where inside that complex is the Oxford English Dictionary headquarters. Yes. So if you come to Oxford, it's not far from the railway station. It's about a five minute minute walk and it's on a street called Walton Street. And that is where Oxford University Press is. And the dictionary that now has 75 people working on it, that is part of the beautiful building where Oxford University Press is. Where is the Bodleian Library that you refer to, and what's its, what's its importance? Well, the Bodleian Library is about a, again, about a five-minute walk from Oxford University Press, and it's right in the heart of Oxford, and it's one of the oldest libraries in the world. It's a library that you can't actually take books out of, so you go to it to access any any book. And it's what's called um, a legal deposit library, which means that every book that's published in Britain, one copy of it is sent to the Bodleian, which means that there are millions of books and underneath the ground in Oxford. So when you're walking around the streets of Oxford, there are actually six miles of tunnels underneath Oxford where they store the books. And they've now just in the last few years filled up those tunnels and now they are storing books off-site at a town that's about an hour away called Swindon. Yeah. Where are you from originally? I'm originally from Australia. Where? Oh, from a town called Brisbane. How did you find your way to Oxford University? I was a student of linguistics down in Australia at the Australian National University. And the Australian Oxford Dictionary has a a dictionary centre on the campus of the university. And that's while I was doing my master's, I started working for them part time. And I I did the 
the pronunciations in the first Oxford Dictionary to have Australian pronunciations. And then I ended up coming over to Oxford working as an ed- ed- editor at the mothership of the Oxford English Dictionary. And I've been living outside Australia now for about 30, 30 years, and Oxford's been my home for most of those. Although, while I was working on this book, I was working at Stanford University, and they were wonderfully supportive and a They loved this project, and I worked with a team of students there who helped me research those 3,000 people, and we we trawled through censuses and marriage certificates and death certificates and birth sites, and we just tried to find out as much as we could about these 3,000 people because we figured many of them devoted their lives to this. So the the top scoring contributor who sent in the most slips and therefore the most words sent in 165,000 slips. The next top contributor sent in 151,000. So these people became absolutely committed to this task. And I then became committed to telling their story and finally shining a light on them. An American part of this book is a guy named Dr. Minor. Yes. And it's interesting for me is the title of the book from an English perspective is different. Here it was The Professor and the Madman by Simon Winchester. Tell us what the title was for uh, English. Yes, exactly. So Simon Winchester wrote a wonderful book called um, The Professor and the Madman in America. It was called The Surgeon of Crowthorn in uh, Britain. And it and it was about one of these 3000 people. And he and his name was Dr. Minor. He was an American surgeon who came over to England and killed someone and ended up in Broadmoor, which is an asylum for the criminally criminally insane. And it was there that he contributed to the dictionary. And before we found these address books, we thought that he was the own, only murderer and probably the only person living in a psychiatric hospital but it turns out that there are three murderers and he's just one of them so in my book there one of the chapters is m for murderers where i talk about these these three murderers and then there's also a chapter called l for lunatics which is what people who were mentally ill were called on the census and we have four people um connected with um what what were called mental asylums back then. So we are talking about a very colorful group of group of people. Dr. Miner, tell us more about him. I know he spent some time in St. Elizabeth Mental Hospital here in Washington. He did. And then he went to England to recuperate. And it was there in London, in Lambeth, that he murdered someone and ended up, as I said, in the mental asylum. Um, when he uh, sent in slips to Murray, he signed his letters as Dr. Minor. And so Murray corresponded with him and just presumed that Dr. Minor was one of the doctors working at the psychiatric hospital. And after about 20 years, he goes to visit him and realizes there and then that this was not a doctor, but in fact, an inmate. They became the best of friends, actually. And uh Murray eventually supports um the not the release of Dr. Minor but his transfer back to America. So he actually goes back to us 
back to America, I think in, well, I got it in the book and I think in 1902, and it was there that he went to live back at St. Elizabeth's. And that was where he died in the, I think, um, 1931. Who were the other murderers? There is Edward Meyerbridge, who is the famous photographer, the man who worked with Leland Stanford, the founder of Stanford University, to prove that when horses gallop, all of their feet rise off the ground. And he did that by setting up 36 cameras and more or less pioneering the early days of moving pictures. So Edward Meyerbridge was a famous photographer back then and a pioneer of moving pictures. He had a wife who had a love affair and was pregnant with a child that he thought might be the lover's child. So he hunted down the lover and murdered him. Uh, he managed to get off the murder thanks to the th thanks to the financial support of Leland Stanford, who gave him the best attorney. And he lived happily ever after and never went to uh, prison. The other murderer is Sir John Richardson, who actually also um, stars in the chapter C for Cannibal. So basically, there are 26 chapters from A to Z. And Sir John Richardson was an explorer with the famous Franklin Exp Expedi expedition to discover the Northwest Passage, which was this famously doomed expedition in which there were 21 explorers and 11 of them perished. And while on that expedition, John Richardson uh, ends up being tricked, he said, and he, he ends up eating the bodies of two of his uh, fellow explorers. And then he murders, he murders one of his, um, expedition um, members as well. Anyway, it's a bit of a complicated story, but it's a wonderful story. And I tell that in Sea for Cannibal. Karl Marx's daughter? <laughs> yes, Karl Marx's daughter is is also one of the dictionary people. The fun thing about James's James Murray's address book is that he wrote all these little notes about people so when a woman would get married and her surname would change, Murray would note that in the address book. Or if someone wasn't very good at the task, he, he would write hopeless, no good, gave up, imposter, stole the book, all these really fun notes. And one of those hopeless contributors was Eleanor Marx, Karl Marx's daughter, who ends up uh, going into the British Library. And um, first of all, she insists on being paid for the work, as you might imagine that Karl Marx's daughter might um, insist on that. Uh, so Murray reluctantly agrees to do that. So then she just goes into the British Library, takes an existing glossary off the bookshelf and basically copies out words from an existing dictionary, sends them into Murray. And Murray is furious, of course, because these are useless for him and he's agreed to pay her. So she's definitely one of the hopeless contributors. And her story, as well as others, is told in the H for Hopeless Contributors chapter. When did you come up with the idea of having each letter of the alphabet be the title for your uh, your book? I mean, your chapter. It actually 
it took me years to come up with that structure. Basically, I spent eight eight years researching all of the people, and then and then I was sorting through them, looking for patterns amongst the people, sorting them in in into themes, making sure that I could tell the story of the most captivating characters. And I was struggling with how to structure it. And then it just came to me during the night when I was worrying about it. The A to to Z structure came to me and I got up and I wrote out and then it it just worked. And once I once I cracked that structure, once I I highlighted the people that I wanted to 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 tell the stories of, then the writing just took about a year. It, It was quick. Yeah. James Murray, tell us about him. James Murray was similar to all of these other dictionary people. So one of the most surprising discoveries of this project was that these people are not the scholarly elites who you might expect. In fact, they're the amateurs, they're the autodidacts. Many of them left school at the age of 14 or 15. And James Murray, the famous editor, is actually one of those. He left school at 14. He grew, he was Scottish. He grew up in the Scottish borders. He uh, taught himself 25 languages by reading different versions of the Gospels. And he was dedicated to analyze language and words. So when he became the editor, finally, in 1879, he devoted the rest of his life to this task. He used to get up at 4 a.m. He used to work till late at night. The scriptorium that I mentioned, the shed in the back garden, was dug into the ground partially and was therefore very dank and cold. And during the winters, the editors had to wrap their legs in newspaper to 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 stay warm and Murray gave absolutely everything to this task he was a great scholar but he always remained on the margins and on the fringes he he was never really accepted in the social and academic world of Oxford he was never made a member of a senior common room of any of the Oxford colleges so he remained an outsider, I guess. And there is a chapter O for outs- outsiders because this is a common theme amongst the dictionary people. And one of the questions that I had was what was motivating these people to volunteer so much of their time to this task? And when I realized that most of them were not the scholarly elites, I thought that the reason that they were probably motivated to commit themselves in this way was that this was a chance for them to be part of a project attached to a prestigious university and to be part of a project and a world that they were otherwise excluded from. James Murray had how many children and how involved was his wife? (laughs) James Murray had 11 children. His long-suffering wife, wonderful Ada, was more or less his private secretary and helped him and supported him. Um, His children loved him. Two of them wrote biographies of their father. They speak of a man who was great fun, which I talk about. So there's a chapter F for families. Uh, And he got all of the children involved in helping with the dictionary. So when the dictionary people sent in their 
their slips. James Murray got his 11 children to help sort the slips and he used to pay them a penny an hour to do that. And as I describe in the chapter F for Families, that he was fun and he some some sometimes put little notes um, about the children in the dictionary. So there are a couple of references hidden in some of the en- entries about his uh, children. And uh, he died in 1915 while working on the letter T. So unfortunately, he died not not knowing whether his life's work would ever be finished. The dictionary was finished uh, 13 years later in 1928. And one of his daughters could attend, although, so sorry, one of his daughters could attend the final grand dinner when the dictionary was finally published. They had a grand dinner in Goldsmiths Hall in London where the prime minister attended and all the journalists and the great and the good attended. Sadly, there were no dictionary people there. They weren't in invited, um, or if they were, very few of, of them were. And unfortunately, women weren't allowed to sit with the men at the dinner. They There were three women who were allowed to attend, but they had to sit up in this balcony and just watch watch the men eat. And one of those was Murray's daughter. So there was someone representing the family there. How many out of the 3,000 amateurs, as you would say, who contributed to uh, the dictionary were women? A lot more than we thought. So there were uh, nearly 500 women. Uh, they came from all walks of of life. There was the first female astronomer, Elizabeth Brown, who sent in 7,000 slips. There was a wonderful woman who grew up in Calcutta called Margaret Murray. She starts the book in A for Archaeologist. She she lived in Calcutta with her family. She used to wake up early in the morning, go up to the roof of the house while while it was cool and read her, her books from her mother's shelf and write out slips and send them into Murray. Many years later, in her late 20s, she moves from India to England and attends this lecture by the famous archaeologist Flinders Petrie, falls in love with e- Egyptology, and she becomes the first female Egyptologist. And she lives to be 100, and on her 100th birthday, she published her memoir, which which was called My First Hundred Years. And it's a wonderful book about her life, and it's now my, my favorite book. So if if any of your listeners can 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 find that book, I really recommend it. It came out in 1963. And the fun thing about Margaret Murray is that in the 20th century, she became one of the world leaders on witchcraft, and she wrote two books about witch, witchcraft. She became finally a professor at the Uni- University College London, and some of her colleagues told funny stories where... If she didn't agree with one of the appointments of her colleagues, she used to cast cast some spells in her saucepan. Talk a, a, about the slip, and I mean, or, or or just along the way. If I wanted to, back in those days, participate in this, yeah. 
paint a picture of what I would do and what 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 did I what would I write on those slips and how did I know that the the words ever got into the dictionary? So Murray gave some guidelines. So he he would send out a leaflet which had twelve rules, like um, and the rules were try and find words that are rare or uncommon or that strike you perhaps as unusual. And he later lived to regret saying that because he actually struggled to then find examples of common words. And often he and his editors would be scrambling around trying to find examples of more common words. So you would read a book, you would take a book that was local to you. So something probably, or it didn't have to be, but many people chose something particular to their place. And you would uh, take a little piece of paper, four by six inches, and you would put the head word. So the word that you wanted to go into the dictionary, that would go in the top left-hand corner. You would then write the date of the published book, the author of the book, and the title of the book, then the page number, and then you would write out the quotation exemplifying that word. Under, underneath that. So that was the structure and that's what the s- slips looked like. You would then send them into Murray in in Oxford and you'd have no idea whether he would have accepted that or not. And Murray would then take your slip and get the children to sort it with all of the other slips that other people sent in for that word and when they came to edit that word they would get your slip plus the other ones and then write the definition the etymology and then under the etymology and the definition they would then have a quotation paragraph where your quotation would be listed with everyone else's and so the whole idea there is that the Oxford English Dictionary is an historical dictionary that tells that shows you the history of the word it gives the biography of that word and it shows when the word was very first used and follows it through its life to the current day. Why did that? Was there this strange system? If Americans had a slip, how did they get it all the way to Murray? Oh, that's a great question. Yes. So some people sent them directly to Murray. And so there are about 200 Americans who sent it directly to Murray, but postage across the Atlantic was expensive. So what they did is they actually set up a system where Murray chose a secretary to the dictionary. And that was a Vermonter called George Marsh to begin with. And so that that meant that George Marsh was the secretary to the dictionary and all Americans who wanted to contribute would send their slips to him, which was much cheaper. And then he would gather these thousands of slips and send them in cartons across the ocean to Murray. Weren't there, wasn't there a two-step thing, one to Vermont, then to Pennsylvania? Yes. So uh, George, um, yes, terrific. So George Marsh was the secretary from 1858 until 1879. And then in 1879, when George Marsh became a diplomat and was the American ambassador to Italy, so he moved to then the ambassador was not based in Rome, but in Florence. So he moved to Florence. And then um, 
Francis March took over and he was at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. And he was a fantastic character who was really the world's first professor of the English language um, because the study of English as a discipline is quite recent. Um, I thought that that I think people think that that must be a very old field and discipline, but it's but it's not. Um, so, um, yes, Francis March was the first professor of English language and he and he was at Lafayette College. And so people sent their slips to sent the slips to him at Lafayette and then he sent them over to Murray. What's the story of the sensitive swear words? And the story is that Murray <laughs> uh, was very strict in making sure that if a word was used in an English context, he would put it in. So he was very inclusive and he put in thousands of American-isms, thousands of words that were only used in America, lots of slang words. When it came to coarse words and swear words, um, he uh, was a little bit limited because at the time there was an Obscenities Act. And in the 1870s and 80s, uh, there was another lexicographer called Stephen Farmer who had published a slang dictionary, a wonderful slang dictionary, which included the C word and the F word. And he was being sued. And this this was a big court case going on. And I found some letters in the archive from Stephen Farmer to James, James Murray, where he's telling him about all of his um, wor- worries about this court case. So Murray collected as much information as he could about the C word and and the F word, but then he decided not to include it in the dictionary because he didn't want to be sued and he didn't want to bring a negative attention to the dictionary. So those words didn't get in actually until the 1970s. You say he was religious? He was. He was a nonconformist and he was very religious. And I highlight his his personal faith in the book uh, for the first time, really. No one has really written about his 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 personal prayer prayer life, but I found some of the prayers which he wrote and that he used to say daily. And I also found a wonderful journal ent- entry about this mystical experience that he had walking in the Lake District. So in the 19th century, and I don't know whether people do this in the States, now but back then they used to go when it was a full moon people would go out walking at night and james murray went out alone and got lost in the mountains around the lake district and he had a mystical experience where he fell to to his knees and and he prays to his god to save him and that really changed his life and he was saved and he found his way back and he was always extremely grateful to that experience and referred to it throughout his life. And I tell that story. Where did you go to find all this information? How many different places? I went to a lot of places. I went to the Huntington Library in in California. I went to libraries and archives in Australia, in Scotland. Wherever the trails took me, I followed them. And yes, I was quite, I, I guess that I did become a little obsessed, a bit like the dictionary people. <laughs> Do you have 
a, a favorite word? I don't really, although there are some great words in 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 the book. So uh, aquabob is a great word. That's a word for an icicle. Um, that one is the one that I can think of, but there are so many fun words in the book. So if someone is a word lover, they're going to love it. What about <laughs> Mr. Murray, Dr. Murray's attitude about itis, appendicitis? Oh, that's a great story. Yes. So Murray would send, would do as much as he could on many of these entries and then send them to a specialist in that particular field. So when he worked on medical terms, he would do as much as he could and then send them to the medical expert. And it was a, a surgeon called D Dr. James Dixon. And he sent early on when he was working on the letter A, he sent the word appendicitis to Dr. Dixon, who writes back and says, look, if you start putting in all of these itis words, you'll never stop. So I recommend leaving this this one out. So Murray did what what was recommended and he left out the word appendicitis. But then in uh, 1907, with the coronation of Edward VII, suddenly uh, the king couldn't be, um, the, the uh, coronation was delayed because the king had appendicitis. And suddenly everyone was using the word and referring to appendicitis, but no one could find it in the dictionary. And Murray regretted leaving it out, shall we say. In our introduction to you, I use your own words to describe some of the people. And so I want you to uh, tell us more about them. One of them was a cocaine addict found dead in a railway station laboratory. This was a young medical student called Eustace Bright, who, in fact, so before Murray became the editor of the dictionary, he he was a school teacher at a school in London called Mill Hill. And quite a few of the dictionary people were his students. And Eustace Bright was one of his brightest students, a medical student who actually became addicted to cocaine because cocaine was actually sold in pharmacies back then. It, it was legal, but of course, as a young medical student, he had access to lots of it. And he became addicted and was finally found dead um, in his mid I think he was 24 years old, and he was found dead in a railway station lavatory. A pair of lesbian writers who wrote under a male pen name. Yes. So in the late, in the mid to late 19th century, there was a famous poet called Michael Field that everyone loved and claimed as the next Shakespeare until they found out that Michael Field was actually a pseudonym for two women. And these women were Catherine Bradley and Edith Cooper. And they and their names are in the address book. And they were very faithful contributors to the dictionary. They read the rom romantic poets and sent in thousands of words for the dictionary. It turned out that they were actually aunt and niece. They were lesbian lovers. And their story is told wonderfully in a few biographies, but we never knew before now that they were contributors to the dictionary. So that's a nice surprise. Who is the president of Yale that got involved in this? That's Noah Porter. 
who was the president of Yale and, in fact, before becoming president, was one of the editors of the wonderful Webster's Dictionary. So he was one of the great and the good um, and one of the scholars who contributed to the OED. And, in fact, I was in Yale um, this um, spring and I went to visit his grave, which is there. Uh, I'm going to divert just for a moment to ask you this. You lived in Australia, born in Australia, uh, lived for the last 30 years in Great Britain, and then you spent time at Stanford. Is there any way to describe the difference in the way Australians, Americans, and British look at this whole business you're involved in, the differences between those three English-speaking countries and people? Oh, it's a great question. I think Australians... I th- yes, I could try to encapsulate that. So I think um, Australians were for decades uh, trying to ape Britain and trying to be as British as possible, but then just gave up and became very proud of their language. And so it took a while for um Australia to have their own dictionary so the Macquarie dictionary was the first Australian dictionary in the um 1970s however through this project i discovered that there was an englishman who went to australia in the 1870s and helped murray by collecting so many words from australia sending them back to oxford And James Murray said to him, you've sent me so many words, you could create your own Australian dictionary. So he did. He created an Australian version of the OED, which was called Austral English, and he actually published it in 1898, but not many Australians know about that. So that's how I would um, describe Australians. And so now they're extremely proud of their Australian English and they've got their own Australian dictionaries and I think thanks to your wonderful uh, Webster um, you have always been proud of your language so from 1828 and the publication of the Webster's Dictionary I think American English has been thriving ever since. What were the students like at Stanford that you worked with And what was their take on all this? They were so bright and fantastic and enthusiastic and they were tech savvy. So, in fact, a lot of the research for this book comes from digital analysis. We created together two large data databases to just cope with the with the scale of this project, because when you're researching 3000 people, you've got to have a way of storing all of that research. So we created one large database for the people, another large database for their contributions, all the books that they read, because in Murray's address book, he he would list the person, their address, and then every book that that person read, the number of slips that they sent in per per book, and the date that he received those. So the Stanford students, I couldn't have done it without them. I thank them in in the book. They were fantastic. How many of the slips during Dr. Murray's time are in the basement of the Bodleian Library? They're all kept there. Did you have access to them? 
Yes, I did. And I, I was fortunate because I used to be an editor there. And when you work on a particular word, sometimes you might want to go down into the basement and see those original slips to see. Uh, and so they're all stored down down there, millions of these slips, <clears throat> not only the slips that actually got chosen to go into the dictionary, but all of those other superfluous slips as well. So everything is kept. It's the most wonderful archive. And the OED has a great archivist who's extremely um, helpful. And um, yes, it's a terrific place and a wonderful archive to work in. Okay, who are the top four slip givers and why were they all in asylums? Well, the top four are Thomas Austin, William Douglas, um, Dr. Minor comes in fourth, actually. Above him is someone called Dr. Brush, Brushfield. Uh, I think that they're all connected with mental asylums because they were obsessive. And I think back then, I think they were probably just neurodiverse and on the spectrum. Um, and so I think in the 19th century, that unfortunately gave you the label. So in, in 1871, there was a new column added to the British census, and that column was for people who were labelled lunatics. And so four of my people had lunatics written beside them. And yes, I think that they were probably just on the spectrum. I don't think that they were at all mentally ill in a serious way, although one of them does become mentally ill, and I tell his story in Elf for Lunatics. It's a wonderful man called John Dormer who does incredibly detailed work for Murray over a 10-year period and begins of finally to hear voices coming from the walls of his house. Um, so he does end up in Croydon Mental Asylum. What did Dr. Murray do when he didn't like somebody? Uh, I'm not sure, actually. I think he probably just... Um, did he get mad at people? No. Well, there's no evidence for that. I mean, he's very dismissive of people who who don't work hard. And there were a few... As I tell, there are a few editorial assistants who I think he he refers to as a as a numbskull. Yes, as a numbskull. So he, um, but I think he was just dis dismissive of people, and um, so I think he would just dis dismiss them and move on. So, what was the hardest part of doing this project? Uh, well, I think it was tracking down some of the key people. So Thomas Austin, who sent in the 165,000 slips, he was the hardest person for me to, 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 to track down because he, in the address books, he had many different addresses. He moved around a lot and he eventually, and he to he spends spells in, in mental asylums and he becomes quite a nuisance to Murray and to the scriptorium. I found a wonderful letter in the Huntington Library in California that tells his story, that Murray tells the story of Thomas Austin and how he he would come to the scriptorium and pester the staff and ask for money. He was trying to be paid for 
for his for his work, but Murray was having none of it. Who are some of the other strange people you found or you know, it's hard to call somebody strange, but you know what I'm talking about. They weren't they weren't in an asylum, but they had odd lives and uh, if it wasn't for putting these slips into the OED, they wouldn't ever be noticed. Well, you know, I don't think of them as strange. You know, I think we're, we are probably all strange if someone delves deep enough into our lives. Uh, there are certainly colourful characters, and I think that Henry Spencer Ashby is one of one of those. He lived in Bloomsbury in London and had the world's largest collection of pornography and erotica. And so... He sends in all the slip, all the slips with um, sex words, and I can just imagine, imagine Murray blushing a bit when when he received those. Um, but yeah, there are just fantastic characters. Uh, I'm going to have a quick look at the. Oh, there are the rain collectors. So it turns out that the OED wasn't the only crowdsourced project, but there was this other. There were two other projects going on. One was asking people to collect rain in their back gardens. So this was the precursor to weather forecasting. And so people would collect rain overnight in gauges in their back garden and then send in the rain measurements in the morning. So I've got about 10 people who are, are rain collectors as well as word collectors. And then I have an eccentric parson from Norfolk in England who also collected wildflowers and there was another crowdsourced project with the Royal Botanical Society asking people to collect local wildflowers and send them in for a plotting of wildflowers across the country. Who is your friend Chris Collier? Well, people still send in slips to the dictionary and when I first started as a lexicographer, I used to open the mail. So 35 years ago, I would open the post and these bundles of slips would come in monthly. They were eccentrically wrapped in cornflake packets with bits of dog hair stuck to them. At least I hoped that it was dog hair. And I would open these slips and they all came from a single source from my hometown of Brisbane. They all came from the Courier Mail, which is not a very esteemed paper. <laughs> But this man sent in over 100,000 slips over 30 years, and his name was Mr. Chris Collier. And I eventually got to go and meet him and because my family is from, from that town. So when I was home, he said, oh, come and meet me in my office, which was a, which was a, a park behind the Paddo Tavern, which is quite a rough pub in Brisbane. I went there. There he is sitting in the sunshine on a park bench, reading, of all things, the Korea Mail. And I sat down and spoke to him and I said to him, you know, Mr. Collier, we would love to fly you over to Oxford, show you the workings of the dictionary. You've sent in so many words and been such an incredible contributor. We'd love to do that. And he paused for a moment and said, oh, but just imagine all the Korea Mails waiting for me. I couldn't possibly... So he didn't take you up on the money and the to fly him over there. He, he didn't. And when I did and so I did an analysis of the dictionary to just see whether there might be a bias in it towards the Korea Mail. And sure enough, there are more quotations in the dictionary from the Korea Mail, thanks to Mr. Collier, than there are from 
T.S. Eliot or Virginia Woolf. Speaking of Virginia Woolf, you write about Tramps, the Sunday Tramps, and Leslie Stephen. Who was he? He was. So Leslie Stephen was Virginia Woolf's father, and he was uh, the editor of the Dictionary of National Biography, and he was also one of the dictionary people. He was an agnostic and quite anti-religion. So on Sundays when people were going to mass and to services, he formed a group of people called the Sunday Tramps. So to 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 tramp means to hike. And these this was a group of hikers who would go hiking around the countryside. And that was him. So there's a whole chapter on tramps, the Sunday Tramps. One of the things that we, it, it's hard to do because you have so many names and so many words in the book, but I'm just looking at a paragraph here where you say he helped appoint William Craigie to the dictionary and advised Murray on hundreds of words pertaining to law and legal history. I'm doing this only just to let people know that these are words like arrest, cognizant, derogatory, outhouse, parry, um, approve, arraign. And then there's a lot of words you have in your book that I've never seen before. I don't understand them. And, and so explain how how they deter, how Murray did, and even today when or when you were working there, how you determine whether this was really a word. So, of course, so the that is why these quotations are so vital, because to know whether a word is a word and to be able to detect its meaning you need to see how it's used. So that's why you need these quotations. So the, it's the quotations that show us how a word is used, and it's also the, the quotations that show us um, uh, how we can verify that word. So a quotation can only go into the dictionary if it's verifiable. So it it needs a date, and we need to be able to uh, be able to go and track that down. So that's why now you can, since we can archive Twitter, Twitter or X can now be used as a quotation because you can then verify it. As as long as the sentence is dated, you can go back and check it. What's been the impact on you since this book came out? It's been very heartening to see the response, to see that people are falling in love with the dictionary people, because I I definitely did. There is a joy. I mean, there are some sad stories there, but basically these people are joyous and they're, and they're generous. They gave of their time and of their energy and of their, their intellect, and there's something joyous about them. So for me, in discovering them in their lives, it was a joyous process. So this whole book has been joyous. I, I'm still an, enjoying it. I love to talk about them, which is so weird because I've been with them for 10 years. And you'd sort of think that I might be sick of them, but I'm absolutely not. And so it's and also there was a social justice aspect to this project. I really wanted people to appreciate the dictionary people and know about them and give them credit finally. The chapter O for Outsiders, your first sentence, Jane Austen was the first person to write the word outsider. Where she did you was. where did you find that? So if you go to her letters to her sister, 
there's a funny letter where she's writing to her sister and she's talking about a dinner party that she's just um, attended the night before and she refers to someone at that dinner party as an outsider. And so I loved starting that chapter with that quotation from a letter from Jane Austen. And it's one of my favorite chapters, actually, because when you ask me, if you ask me who one of my favorite people is, I think it is Joseph Wright, who is who stars in the outsider chapter. He started life in a very poor York, Yorkshire family where he was put to work at the age of six in a mine as a donkey boy. So a donkey boy was someone who rode a donkey and carried the tools for the miners. At the age of 11, he moves from the mine to work in a cotton mill. He still can't read or write by the age of 15, but he goes to a morning tea when he's 15 and someone is reading from the newspaper and he's captivated by the story and he's determined then to learn to read and write. He ultimately becomes the professor for comparative literature and linguistics at the University of Oxford. So he absolutely goes from being an outsider to being an insider and he helps the dictionary on dialect words. He himself writes a wonderful dialect dictionary in the 1890s and he becomes a close friend of James Murray's and a wonderful contributor to the dictionary. Where did the money come from? There was never enough money. (laughs) Dear James Murray was not a good businessman because he agreed a deal with Oxford University Press where they would pay him um, in one lump sum. So they paid him to do the dictionary in 10 years. They paid him £10,000. And out of that, he had to pay all of his assistants and his editors. He had to pay for the books. He had to pay for the paper, the postage, as well as care for his fam- family with 11 children. So he was always um, stressed about money and scraping around for money. And some of these dictionary people, as I tell, were wealthy and helped him by giving him funds at times. Does the Oxford English Dictionary today make money? I'm not sure because I don't work for it. I do know that it carries the prestige for Oxford University Press. So in that way, it's quite a priceless text With without it and the prestige that comes with it. I think it would be um, a loss for the Oxford University Press. So it it really is their flagship product. So in that way, it's it's quite a priceless book. What degree did you get from Oxford yourself? I got my doctorate in linguistics. Why did you go there? I went actually to work on the dictionary um, as an editor. And so then I did my doctorate after working as an editor on the dictionary. And I wrote my doctorate on the OED. So it really is a passion of mine. Describe Oxford. What does it mean to you? And describe it for somebody that's never been there. It's a big name, and we've interviewed lots of people over the years who uh, are published through the Oxford Press. Mm. So Oxford as a city is a very beautiful 
town, I guess it's a large town, and it does have a cathedral, so it classifies as a city. So it has many sandstone, beautiful buildings, and it is comprised of 39 colleges, and each of them has their own chapel and a be- and quadrangles and beautiful buildings. Uh, it is old. It's centuries old. It's 13th century. It it started. Um, so that's what Oxford is like. And so when you're there, you feel very small. You feel like this is a place that's carried and has been home to millions of people before you. And it will like, yeah, so I feel quite ins- insignificant there. I know that this will be home to many other people after me as it has before me. Uh, but there is something special about it. So it's a nice place to be. Yeah. Did you find along the way people that you'd like to write more about in another book? You could choose any of these people and write a whole book on them. <laughs> so that could be a lifelong. And to be honest, I'm not going to do that. But I really hope and it has begun to happen. I really hope that people will take up that task and I pass on the baton to people who, so if readers, if listeners read the book and are captivated by some of the people and want to do further research, please do. And in fact, I just heard yes, yes, yesterday from a man in the, the Netherlands because there was a wonderful sub-editor called Mr. A. Kelland. And I could never find out his first name. And I say this in the book, I couldn't find out his first name. And someone just wrote to me yesterday from the Netherlands. He did all of this research because he lives in a town close to where this man lived. And so he found out that A stands for Abraham. So it's wonderful that this has started now to be a global task. And I really hope that more people will do further research on these people. I need to touch base with you on your P for pornographer chapter. Yes. Well, that was the um, Henry Spencer Ashby who sent in the sex words, uh, a very colorful character who was married with uh, three children, but also had another wife and a whole family with her. Um, so he's definitely one of the more co- colorful characters. When he died, so he not only did he collect pornography, but he also collected Cervantes. And when he died, he left his collection of Cervantes and pornography to the British Library. They wanted the Cervantes. They were very um, perturbed about the pornography. So I actually found Um, a committee meeting minutes where they're discussing whether they should burn the pornography, what they should do with this. So they end up burning and destroying some of the pornography. The rest of it, they actually lock up in a special cabinet. And that cabinet remained locked until the 1960s. And today it's still stored. That cabinet is still stored behind the scenes in the British Library. You can call up and you can ask for some of the items in there, but it still exists and some of his pornography is still stored in it. A couple more questions. We have not talked about somebody that you you write a lot about in the book, Frederick Furnival. Yes. Frederick Furnival is one of my favorite people and you wouldn't believe it, but just last night I did a reading in Bath, which is a town here, 
in England in a bookshop. And the bookshop was packed with people coming to hear about the dictionary people. And one of them was Frederick Furnival's great, great granddaughter. And so she came and she showed and she was telling me about the family history. And anyway, it was terrific. So he was one of the founders of the Oxford English Dictionary. And he was this big, colorful character, a typical Victorian who started clubs and societies. He had an eye for the ladies. He he founded the first female rowing team. And still, you can go to Hammersmith in London, and there's Furnival Sculling Club, it, it is called. And it now is for men and for women. But back then, it was only for women. Frederick Furnival founded that. Frederick Furnival became... so. The first editor of the dictionary was someone called Herbert Coleridge, but he died two years into the task and Frederick Furnival took over and was the editor for 20 years before James Murray took over. And he did very important work by, because he was this big, colourful character, he was this extrovert and he pioneered this whole process of asking the public to send in slips. And so it's, it's thanks to Furnival that the dictionary from 1858 to 1879 had hundreds of people sending in slips. And when Murray took over the job, Frederick Furnival sent him two tons of slips. So he really did a lot of collecting during those 20 years. Last question, one sentence and acknowledgements for my, my gratitude goes to Jane, who is always my first interlocutor and best critic. Who's Jane? Jane is my partner, and yes, and the, the first person that I discussed everything with and who has accompanied me through this whole thing and read several versions and was a great proofreader. The name of the book is The Dictionary People. The subtitle is The Unsung Heroes Who Created the Oxford English Dictionary. And our guest is originally an Australian living in Oxford in England, Sarah Ogilvy. Thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Book Notes Plus. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books That Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact, This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about books that shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.